we have some, some special guests with us today, um, Jim and Robin Johnson, who were a uh, former pastor here. We are, we are so glad that you all are here today worshiping with us and look forward to, to speaking with you after the service. Glad you're here. Well, today in worship, we will continue our series called Outside the Box. For the past few weeks, we have been exploring out-of-the-box kinds of ways in which God works in our world. And we've learned that even though you and I tend to put each other, or sometimes even ourselves, in a box, God doesn't leave us there for very long. As we continue, we hope to discover what it looks like for us to be a church who lives out our faith outside the box. And so as we worship today, I would like to invite us to consider this question. In what outside-the-box kind of way do you need God to work in your life? Or in what outside-the-box kind of ways do we need God to work in our world? And do we really trust in God to do that? To do abundantly more than we could ever dare to ask or imagine? Let us worship together.
are grateful for the opportunity to gather together and worship you. Give us vision to see how we constrain you, forgetting your power and steadfast love. Give us courage to go beyond our limits, becoming a living testament to your grace. Soften our hearts to your words this morning. Amen.
Deuteronomy. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking, the seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally, and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what, am I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Hey, y'all. Doing okay? Doing all right? Okay. Well, each week we're uh, taking something out of the box that reminds us of our Bible story. So who would like to reach in here and feel and see? Oh, let's turn it around. Go ahead, William. Can you feel? All right, don't take it out. Just feel. What does it feel like? 
What's it feel like? You don't know? Okay. Here you go. Take a don't look. It feels like an inside of a box. It feels like an inside of a box. <laughs> Good. Did you did you actually okay. Here, feel. Can you feel what's in there? It's hiding. Y'all are looking for it. There it is. What does it feel like? Bandage? Go ahead. What's it feel like? Bandage. A bandage? Here we go. One more. Definitely a bandage. You're right. It's a bandage. It's gauze, which is another word for a bandage. Um, so, what Bible story does this make y'all think of or remember? Jada. The one with the Good Samaritan? Yeah, the one we just heard? Yeah, Jesus told this story um, because someone asked him a question. He said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, there was a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was uh, attacked by robbers. And they robbed him, and they beat him, and they left him on, uh, in a ditch beside the road, almost dead. And then a priest came along, and a priest is someone who was at the temple and would teach people about God, kind of like Pastor Mary Alice is here. And the priest came, and when he saw the man who was hurt in the ditch, he didn't stop and help. He walked on past. And then a Levite came. And a Levite is another person who works in the temple, trying to make sure everything is set up the way it needs to be and everything looks nice and neat, kind of like our deacons or our ushers. And the Levite didn't stop to help the man who was hurt either. He walked on by. And then a Samaritan came by. Now, what you have to understand is that Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. They didn't work together. They didn't play together. They didn't worship together. And they didn't want anything to do with each other. So when Jesus was telling this story, the people who were listening probably thought that the Samaritan would go past too. Or maybe, maybe they, he would be even meaner and do something else bad to the man. Maybe kick him or, or hurt him more. But what Jesus said surprised them all because Jesus told them that the Samaritan had compassion on the man who was hurt. He stopped walking and he helped him. And the Samaritan was willing to look at the Jewish man and see him out of the box, out of the box of how the Samaritan usually thought about Jewish people. And since the Samaritan was able to see the Jewish man out of the box, to see this Jewish man differently than the Samaritan might have otherwise thought of him, he was able to have compassion and to let that compassion move him to help. You know, sometimes God sends people to be our neighbors, sends people for us to love and to serve and to help that we wouldn't normally want to work with or play with or worship with or have anything to do with. But God doesn't want us to put people inside boxes. God wants us to see that everyone, to see everyone with the kind of compassion and love that God sees them with. And that can be really hard, right? It's hard for me sometimes. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear God, sometimes it's hard to love people in our lives. Sometimes we do not, sometimes we do not have compassion. Help us to take people out of the boxes we put them in and see them the way you see them. Fill us up with your love so that we can love others like you love them. Amen.
Okay, you can go back to your seats. close friend of mine in the early 1990s taught me that buildings teach us and shape us. My friend David is an architect, and our friendship changed the way I engage constructed spaces. Some buildings, like prisons and strip malls, are simply boxes inside of boxes. Other buildings, like Baylor's Truett Seminary or a great cathedral, are more intentional and have interesting tales to tell us. Some of the world's greatest cathedrals are cross-shaped with their windows and even their furniture, teaching us important theological lessons. And the high vaulted spaces in these cathedrals, these give us a sense of awe when we enter and help us prepare for worship. But Calvary Sanctuary isn't very much like a European cathedral, other than the spires or towers Pointing to the heavens, our Baptist church sanctuaries are rarely designed to teach us theological lessons. Or are they? I've worshipped here at Calvary for 14 years now and have sat, stood, and sang through more than 600 worship services. Is this space trying to teach me something? Are there intentional and providential design elements here? I've concluded that there are, but it's a bit out of the box. Behind me, you'll notice a very nice stained glass structure that tells one or more interesting stories about the presence of God or maybe illustrates the scripture. I'll leave that for someone else to talk about. Our sanctuary's platform has no seats for either pastors nor choir members. They and other contributors for, for the worship service come up from the congregation and then return there. Nor do we have any flags in our sanctuary. 
But we do have a real table from which we serve the Lord's Supper when we do. But the part of the sanctuary that's spoken to me most for years, really, are not these boxes around me on the platform here. They're the three boxes above my head hanging from the ceiling. You might call them speakers. But they give us a very simple message on their face like pips on the face of a domino. Eight, five, eight. Do you see it? Eight, five, eight. Yeah. Surely our speakers don't have a message for us. I mean, they're not holy like a stained glass window or an altarpiece. Some factory worker placed those rivets there to hold the speakers together, right? Uh, at best, this is an accident. Or maybe it's a secret message for your next domino game. Play two double fours and a blank five. I'm going to offer that this 858 message is a call to Scripture, but which one? It could be John 858. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. That's pretty deep theology in very New Testament. Or it could be 1 Kings 858. May he turn our hearts toward him to walk in obedience to him and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestor. Good preaching there as well. But I'm convinced that it's Psalm 85.8, because there's only one book of the Bible that has an 85th chapter and an 8th verse. And it reads, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Now that's a providential message for Calvary worshipers. So, for many years I've sat in my seat pondering this space and those three speakers. <laughs> I connected the dots on their face and found a message from God. Now, you might think it's silly, but as for me, I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people his faithful servants. May we live outside the box, but let us not turn to folly.
Now, gracious God, may the words in my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts together in this place be found pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the 1990s, Johnny Holmes, an African-American man, was the head of security at a high school outside of Chicago, Illinois. Chris Piccolini, a white high school student, was the leader of a local neo-Nazi group. I put you through a lot, the now 43-year-old Chris said to Johnny during an interview on National Public Radio. It was the first time in 18 years that the two of them had sat down to talk with each other. I mean, there were fights, there were words that we had those years that I was there. Looking back, Chris says that isolation is what drove him to become a white supremacist. As a child, he had been relentlessly bullied and felt as if he never fit in until he met a man whose group promised him what he had always been looking for, acceptance. By the time he was 16 years old, Chris became the head of the Chicago area skinheads. I went from a place of complete powerlessness at 14 to someone who felt like he had all the power in the world, Chris said. Johnny, who is now 71, describes Chris as pretty rough at the time. One day he took Chris to the principal's office after he had assaulted a student who was black on campus, and neither he nor the principal could calm Chris down that day. Using language I won't use in worship today, Chris screamed at Johnny, saying, You blank, blank, you get your filthy blank hands off of me. I live to see the day when a blank like you will be hanging from every light pole in our city. Johnny said he would have fought Chris. But you are a 16-year-old kid, he explained. I knew you had been brainwashed. I remember saying to you, Chris, how can you be filled with so much hate for me? You play on the same football team as my son. He said, I just wanted the opportunity to get through to you. And he finally did. After eight years identifying as a neo-Nazi, Chris finally renounced the movement's racist principles. And the reason why, he says, was Johnny. Chris was blown away by the kindness Johnny showed him. He said, the man who I had tormented, he didn't torment me back. He showed me compassion when I least deserved it, and he was the person I least deserved it from, and that eventually stuck. Chris said that that's what ultimately led him to found Exit Solutions, a global organization of former extremists that helps people to leave hate groups. And so today, Chris is making amends in a lot more places than his old high school. He has spoken at a United Nations peace conference in Geneva. He trains police forces, the FBI, and Homeland Security in the mindset and tactics of the white supremacist movement. And at the end of this interview, Chris turned toward Johnny and said, 
I want to say thank you. I'm sitting here today because of you. It's an incredible story of someone showing God-sized compassion, which is something our world could use a whole lot more of right now, don't you think? Our scripture reading for today is a story about someone the original readers would have least expected to show any kind of compassion. The story of the Good Samaritan is likely familiar to just about everyone here, whether you grew up in a church or haven't been in church for a very long time, if ever at all. We know the story in our language. We see organizations and hospitals named after the Good Samaritan. But even if you happen to know this story, as Roy Heller, who is a professor at Perkins School of Theology, says, don't confuse familiarity with understanding. Don't confuse familiarity with understanding. It's a good piece of advice and a good reminder for us not to leave Scripture in a box, but to trust that God always has a fresh new word to share with us. And so here in Luke 10, a lawyer tries to test Jesus by asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jesus often does, he responds with a question. He says, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And the lawyer responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says to him, you know the right answer, but simply knowing isn't what this is all about. Do this, he says, and you will live. So then the lawyer asks a follow-up question. He says, so who is my neighbor? And the story that Jesus proceeds to tell helps to answer that question. He says there was a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho one day when he was robbed, beaten, stripped down, and left for dead on the side of the road. First, a priest walks by, the person we would all expect to immediately run and help the man. Except when the priest sees him, he literally walks to the other side of the road to pass him by. It's like when you or I see that person that we really don't want to bump into and really don't want to talk to, and so we go completely out of our way to try to avoid them. That's exactly what the priest is doing here. And then comes a Levite, someone who is an assistant in the temple, and we would expect a Levite to help too, but he does the very same thing the priest did. He simply passes by on the other side. But the third person who walks by a Samaritan sees the man on the side of the road, immediately goes toward him, is moved with compassion, and goes out of his way to help. Now, we need to pause for a moment here and unpack what's going on. It's easy for us to judge the priest and the Levite here, but would you or I have truly done any differently? How many times have we passed someone in need, maybe in downtown Waco, or lingering outside of a restaurant, or standing at a stoplight around town needing help? And how many of us have gone on by? Now, we may have a variety of reasons why we don't stop to help. Maybe we are in a hurry to do something very important, 
or we support other organizations that can help in better ways than we think we can in that moment, or maybe we're by ourselves and we want to be careful, or, or you fill in the blank. But I would imagine that many of us are much more like the priest and the Levite in this story than we are the Samaritan. And then there's the reality that this story didn't happen in quaint downtown Waco, Texas. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is known to be very dangerous to travel. It was common for robbers and bandits to be hiding alongside of the road, and they would plant traps to entice people to stop. And so it would not have been unlikely at all for a body or some kind of trap or plant to be alongside the road to trick people and to catch them off guard, allowing robbers to easily take advantage of them. If the priest or the Levite had been there, done that before, if they'd heard all those stories, well, it's no wonder they walked to the other side of the road to keep away. And then it's important for us to note that temple regulations at the time actually forbid the priest and the Levite from coming in contact with a dead body. And so if either of them had touched a dead person, they could have been disqualified from their temple responsibilities. A priest or a Levite couldn't even bury their own father or mother without receiving special permission at the time. And so, unlike how we often hear this story told, this isn't the case of the priest or the Levite being too busy or preoccupied or even unsympathetic to the man. True, their behavior is not commendable, but they are following the rules that have been given to them. And they're just not willing to venture very far outside of the box in order to help. But even knowing all of this, none of the original readers of this text would ever have expected a Samaritan to stop and help. It would have been similar to our expecting someone who is white nationalist to stop and help someone who is an African-American. That's just not going to happen. If we actually turn back one chapter to Luke 9, we learn a bit about the Samaritans in verses 51 through 56. Jesus had gone to preach the gospel to the Samaritans, but verse 53 says that when he arrived, they did not receive him. And when the disciples hear about the Samaritans' hostility toward Jesus, James and John immediately say, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And I can imagine that Jesus must have just rolled his eyes at that one. <laughs> but it's a pretty accurate picture of how Jews felt about Samaritans. Like Sarah said earlier, Jews wanted nothing to do with Samaritans which is why it's so significant that it's the Samaritan, just verses later, who comes near the man on the side of the road, bandages his wounds, pours wine and oil on them, puts the man on his animal and takes him to an inn and says, do whatever it takes to take care of this man. Someone who were generous might stop for a few minutes to help. But what the Samaritan does here is completely extravagant and totally unexpected. Fred Craddock explains it this way. He says, the man who delayed his own journey, expended great energy, risked danger to himself, spent two days wages with the assurance of more and promised to follow up, 
was someone who was ceremonially unclean, socially an outcast, and religiously a heretic. The Samaritan is the very opposite of the lawyer as well as the priest and the Levite. And so the story must have been a shocking one to its first audience, shattering their categories of who are and who are not the people of God. Because as we have said these past two weeks, God doesn't leave people in the boxes that the world puts them in. The least expected person in this story is the one who shows us what God-sized compassion really looks like. Now, I am drawn to the word compassion in this story. In some versions, it's also translated as pity. But this term that is used here is used three times in all of Luke. It's used in Luke 7 when Jesus sees the mother of a son who has just passed away and has compassion for her. And so he turns toward the boy's body and says, young man, get up. And sure enough, the boy gets up and begins to speak. And then it's used in Luke 15 in what we call the story of the prodigal son. And that even when the son is a long way off and has done all these crazy things, the father sees him and is filled with compassion for him. And so he kills the fattened calf and throws a party because the son of his was lost and is now found. In each of these instances in Luke's gospel, compassion is so much more than being nice. Compassion is, is a divine action. It's stopping at nothing to get the job done. It's completely extravagant. It's miracle working. And it's completely outside of the box. And so how have you and I been shown God-sized compassion? Like we sang earlier in what has become one of my favorite new worship songs, how have we experienced this overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God in our lives? I learned the following story from Donna Taylor when we were in a small group together last spring. Donna, wave your hand so everybody can see you. And Donna's given me permission to share this story with us today. Ten years ago, Donna's husband, Dan, called her at work one day and said he was having some pain in his shoulder and wasn't feeling well. She didn't think much of it until a friend encouraged her to go home immediately and to get him to the hospital because he could be having a heart attack. And so Donna rushed home. Dan was not thrilled about the idea of going to the hospital, but she insisted. Sure enough, they got to the Providence emergency room, and Dan was having a heart attack. Thankfully, because he was already there, the doctor said he could put in a stint and everything would be just fine. But a few minutes later, someone rushed out of surgery to tell Donna that Dan had begun to have a massive heart attack. They gave her some different options about what might happen, but they were honest with her that he may not make it. They told her to sit in the waiting room, to call someone to be with her, and that they would do everything they could to save him. Well, Donna sat down, completely overwhelmed, and realized that in the rush of getting Dan to the hospital, she didn't have her phone to call anyone. And like many of us, she didn't know anybody's numbers because they were all saved in her phone. But about that time, 
there was a couple all of a sudden standing right in front of her. And the man said, ma'am, you look like you're in trouble. Is there anything I can do to help? And so she explained what was going on, and the man pulled out his phone and said, well, maybe we can Google them. Maybe we can look up on whitepages.com and find their numbers. And so sure enough, he found the number for her son, and they found the numbers of a few of her friends, and she was able to use his phone to call them. And while they were waiting, the man asked if he and his wife could pray with Donna. And so they laid hands on her and prayed with her in the middle of the Providence waiting room. She remembers feeling an immediate connection with this couple who appeared out of nowhere and stepped in to help in such a critical time of need. Well, it wasn't long before Donna's friend arrived at the hospital and they sat down and began to talk. And Donna said, oh, I want to introduce you to these wonderful people who helped me this morning. But when Donna turned around to where they were sitting, they were gone. Before long, Donna's son and more family and friends arrived to wait with her. Her husband, Dan, was the president of the Baylor Women's Basketball Club, and practically the whole club was there to support Donna, too. She said the entire waiting room was filled with people kneeling and praying for Dan. Finally, the doctor came out and shared the news that Dan had made it through the surgery and was going to be okay. She said the room just erupted with celebration. And about that time, she felt a tap on her shoulder. It was the same couple. They said, we just wanted to come back and to see how you and your husband were doing. And Donna was so excited to see them and to tell them the good news and to thank them for their help that morning. And she said, I really want you to meet my son. He's so grateful for all that you've done for me. And she turned around to grab her son to introduce him. And when she turned back around, they were gone again. And she never saw them again. Donna told me this week, if God were ever working outside the box in my life, I felt it that day. I hadn't told Dan goodbye that day, she said. I didn't tell him I loved him. We both just thought he was getting checked out. I had never needed God to be there for me in the way that God was there for me in that moment. And God was there through those people. I just felt a warmth around them. I didn't feel alone anymore, and I was feeling mighty lonely. I felt so cared for when they wrapped their arms around me. I felt God's love that day in a way that I never had before. Now, Dan did pass away a few months later from cancer, but it was that same love, Donna says, that carried her through that time and that continues to carry her today, 10 years later. What does God-sized compassion and God-sized love look like? It looks like that. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything our world needs more right now than that kind of love. Love that breaks down all the barriers and boundaries and boxes that we think qualify how God works in the world. Love that goes out of its way for someone, even someone you don't even know. Love that doesn't expect anything in return. Love that is extravagant and overwhelming and unexpected and unlike anything else you've ever encountered. You see, I mentioned the story of the prodigal son earlier. 
The definition of prodigal is spending resources freely or recklessly, being wastefully extravagant. And sure, this word can refer to the actions of the son who wastes everything he inherits from his father. But what if this word is also referring to the overwhelming, reckless, extravagant love of the father in the story? Because even when the son is a long way off, this love sees him, throws a party for him, and extravagantly welcomes him home. You see, ultimately, the God-sized love that we see from the Good Samaritan and the prodigal father is the love we see in Jesus. As Romans 8.5 tells us, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, even while we were a long way off, Christ died for us. There has never been a more God-sized love than that. And so may you and I seek to live each day in that kind of love, in the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. May we go and do likewise. And so, God, I ask that you would convict us today of the ways in which we need to live in your love, the ways in which we need to go out of our way to show your reckless, unending, extravagant, unimaginable love. God, like the Levite and like the priest, so often we get in our own lanes. We are focused on so many other things. And we just don't even take time to look aside. And we have so many reasons why, but God, help us to just break down those boxes today. Help us to live in your love and respond to your love in the ways that you are calling us. We ask these things in your name and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. Well, you've heard in so many ways today that God is always working outside of the boxes that we put God in. And maybe today you are ready to take a leap of faith to somehow step out of your box and to begin to follow God and to walk in the way of Jesus. Or maybe you want to join our community of faith here at Calvary where we seek to know and to follow Jesus together in the best ways we know how. We would love to welcome you into our church family today. And so however God leads you to respond, our ministers will be in the back of the sanctuary ready to visit with you and pray with you as we continue in worship.
Loving and generous God, whether it is with our time or our resources, today may we be inspired to be open-handed people that give generously out of love and compassion for neighbor. We ask that you inspire us to think outside of ourselves and outside of the box with each passing day and continue to grow in you as we are inspired to tend to the needs of those around us. Amen.
As we go today, I've asked Doug Weaver to share with us just briefly about something that's coming up at Calvary this week. I hope you'll be here this Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. Uh, Amanda Tyler, who leads the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, we call it the BJC. That's uh, an organization in Washington, D.C. She's going to be here at 6. She's also going to be at, at Baylor at 3.30 on Tuesday uh, in the Tidwell Building. You're welcome to come here then. Uh, Amanda's uh, an expert on religious freedom issues, church-state issues. Real briefly, why does that matter? 400 years ago, Baptists articulated a belief that's still controversial that everybody, regardless of who they are, should have the freedom to worship or not. Unfortunately, that's still controversial. If you want to know why religious freedom is important, Amanda Tyler can articulate that for you. Uh, real briefly, <clears throat> she's an expert on the Johnson Amendment. The Johnson Amendment is trying to make uh, it okay for churches to have active political campaigning from the pulpit. If you like that, come talk to her, see what she says. If you don't like that, she can give you some answers on, on that. She is, represents 15 Baptist bodies. Now, if any of you don't know Baptist, that's an amazing, that's a miraculous statement. <laughs> 15 Baptist bodies. Two of them we affiliate with here at Calvary, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and the Baptist General Convention of Texas. This is a really unique opportunity in a small setting uh, to talk to somebody who is a native Texan who's worked for a congressman of Texas who spoke just this past week uh, to Congress on issues of religious liberty. Uh, so again, we'd love for you to come this Wednesday at 6. Awesome. Thank you, Doug. Well, if you are new to Calvary, I'm mindful that we have quite a few newcomers with us today, and we are so glad that you're here. We hope you will stick around for a few moments after worship and allow us to greet you, and so let's all be looking around where we're sitting, and if you don't know somebody, introduce yourself. We are so glad everyone is here. Um, if you have seen those really cool mint-colored Calvary t-shirts this fall, we have more to, to sell and would love for you to buy one, and so I know lots of people have said, oh, I really need to buy one of those t-shirts. Well, you still can. Um, so just check out your worship folder about that. It's also just a great way to get the word out about Calvary and who we are to wear that shirt around town. Um, and also, if you have seen an announcement in the worship folder about Reading Buddies at West Avenue, we've talked about it a lot, we've publicized it a lot. They contacted us this week and they said they need about five to seven more mentors in order for every child who is signed up to participate to have a mentor. So if you've been on the fence, like, oh, somebody else will do that, now is your time. We would love to be able to help them to meet that need. Where's Jennifer Lowe? I know she was. Oh, she's with the babies. That's another great thing. But email Jennifer Lowe. Her email is in the worship folder. Email Lauren if you want to help with the babies, too. We always need help in that way, too. Um, and the youth and volunteers who are getting ready to go to the pumpkin patch, I know you all are super excited about that today. You all are meeting upstairs in the youth room after worship. Well, please stand and join me in this benediction. Friends, may the God who calls you from this place journey with you as you go. May God delight in you with joy, bringing unimagined graces. Walk with you in darkness, shining light along your way. May God be close to you in pain, giving strength for every moment, and comfort you in fear, granting courage to be brave. May God's love surround you. May Christ's mercy astound you, and may the Spirit abound in you, so that you live in the fullness of the God who is with us always. Amen.
stop.